Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. You've heard of Tezos. Everyone's heard of Tezos. Tezos has launched in 2018, but it was being worked on as early as 2014 by Arthur Brightman and his wife, Kathleen Brightman. Tezos is one of those projects that you know has thought of so many things when it comes to governance, socioeconomic experiments, and breaking down the protocol levels um, to, you know, to different aspects. A lot of the contentious uh, changes that Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the different toxicities that we went through, Tezos launched with all those things in mind. So when I talked to Arthur today, we really spent a lot of time like wargaming and talking about what if there's a civil war? How would Tezos solve that? Um, all these different scenarios we talked about. We talked about the consensus algorithm that they invented. And I'm a huge consensus algorithm nerd. You know, I like talking about proof of work, proof of stake. But what was so cool uh, that's proprietary to Tezos is the liquid proof of stake. And we talked about like what is liquid democracy? And what would it look like if something like Second Life were to actually be on Tezos? How would governance and democracy work? I have to be honest, I wasn't preparing for this episode to be as intriguing as it was. I thought we were just going to talk about protocols and blah, blah, blah. Um, But if you notice, there was a lot of laughing going on. There was a lot of uh, interest. My interest was piqued. His his was too. Um, And I really wish actually I continued to do this further. Uh, At the end of the episode, Arthur and I decided to meet in Miami in a few weeks. So I'm really hoping him and I could sit down and continue this conversation. I promise you at the end of this episode, you're going to be so piqued by Tezos. I don't own any, but after this episode, I may go buy some um, just because I'm interested now. And after talking to Arthur, I feel like it could be a good hedge for the future. Um, if I if I if I don't have any, it may be worth it for me to even just get a few hundred bucks worth. So you guys will really enjoy this episode, and I'll talk to you guys right after the ads. I'm so honored that Untold Stories is sponsored by Etoro. Etoro is the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world, with over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year. What I really love about Etoro is that the CEO has been around the Bitcoin space since 2012, so they really, really put their money where their mouths are. U.S. customers, myself included, we can trade the most popular crypto assets, in fact, almost all the ones that you want to trade, with low but transparent fees. So you actually know what you're paying for everything. And that's really, really, really important. So if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice building your portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. So you can create this whole portfolio without trading with any real money to see how you'll do. And you could learn all the different ins and outs without using any real money yet. And then once you're comfortable, you can enter the market and start buying and selling crypto for real. Best of all, one of my favorite features is that you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders in the world, myself included. And we can talk trading, charts, and all things crypto. So listen, head on over to eToro.com. Links are in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. If you're buying, selling, or holding crypto, you are a low-hanging fruit for the IRS. And for many years, I've been waiting for a good solution where I can be proactive in my taxes, but more importantly, to sleep at night. Better than be, like, reactive. 
Before the IRS picks you for an examination, subscribe to our newest sponsor, Crypto Tax Audit. They're really, really cool. Crypto Tax Audit is an audit protection service designed for the needs of the crypto trader. That's you, me, and really everyone else. It acts like an insurance policy. How? Well, what happens is subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself, including preparing the required anti-money laundering forms. Then, if the IRS examines your crypto reporting on your tax return, the experts at Crypto Tax Audit will provide all the IRS representation and tax law research at no charge. The statute of limitations on a crypto tax return is six years. Crypto Tax Audit covers you regardless of what year the IRS examines, all for a low price of $97. Best of all, you can sleep well knowing that the best crypto tax gurus are ready to defend you. Crypto Tax Audit is a service of the Donnelly Tax Law. All new subscribers of Crypto Tax Audit at $97 a year will get a copy of the latest ebook, Does My Crypto Tax Returns Need Surgery? It's a phenomenal book. You get it as soon as you sign up. It's a short but super, super powerful book. While other services are reactive, Crypto Tax Audit are proactive and give you the tools like their crypto tax health check so you can reduce your chances of getting an IRS letter in the first place. No one likes that certified letter from the IRS. Donnelly Tax Law specializes in complex crypto tax return preparation. No situation is too complex for them. So check them out at CryptoTaxAudit.com. That's CryptoTaxAudit.com. And listen, guys, start defending yourself today. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. You've probably heard about Tezos, but if you're like me, it may be something that is confusing to you because Tezos is, the ideas behind it are so new and exciting and different than what we're used to understanding before. Um, I'm happy to have Arthur on the show today. Arthur, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thanks for having me. One of the words that that gets thrown around a lot with Tezos is that it's trying to create a true digital commonwealth. And it's an interesting word. Um, I don't usually see that word when it comes to you know, Bitcoin, crypto, blockchain technology. What is a commonwealth in this, you know, aspect, in this, um, in this stance for Tezos? Yeah, a commonwealth is also a, um, it's a synonym for a uh, republic. So I, I think what's uh, interesting in calling it a commonwealth is that it indicates that we can think of these communities and these blockchains uh, as polities, in a sense, there are, in some sense, political organizations, and that's um, 
that, that is um, that kind of highlights that uh, that aspect. And one of the important aspects in uh, in Tezos, of course, is participation. Um, the idea is that it's not just a passive system; it's a system where people are uh, active. They're incentivized to be uh, to be active, in fact, um, and uh, they, they can they can shape how the system evolves. And a lot of the ideas in in, in Tezos are based on um, ideas about how constitutions work, for example. Yeah, but what I what I guess what I don't understand, not that I don't understand, what I'm what I'm trying to to expand on is, you know, when it comes to a commonwealth, it's not just I guess I, I look at it more like Virginia, right? So so in, in the case of like a state, you choose to live in that state and the commonwealth governs every aspect of your life. Traditionally with with crypto, uh, we're talking about finance, right? But now um between you know your consensus algorithms, the liquid proof of stake, and and you know your architecture that you that you guys have have done, it's it's expanded on that, and it's 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 not just about finance; it's also about governance. And you've really pushed forward with the concept of we need governance, and crypto needs governance. Yeah, and so I, what's funny is that um, the, the white paper and, and the position paper of uh, of Tezos, I don't think they actually use the word governance, uh, but I, I, I will not disown the word for uh, either. Uh, it's, it's not a bad word. I think the idea is that it's true that I think blockchains are mostly useful to uh, represent money, but if I were to extend that a little bit, you know, there's money, there's contracts, and, and, and the proper generalization, I think, is anything... Um, Anything that requires coordination of uh, of actors, incentivized coordinations of uh, of actors in different uh, uh, in different places around the world, or people who don't necessarily trust each other, and that's uh, that, that I think is a, is a very interesting in uh, and general use case. There's a um, there's a concept in game theory. Uh, so there's a well known concept of the Nash equilibrium, and the Nash equilibrium is uh, basically. Um, the strategy you follow when you're reflecting on everyone else's strategy and you pick your strategy accordingly. So that's a Nash equilibrium. And there's also the Pareto equilibrium. And the Pareto equilibrium says that um, it's, it's uh, sorry, it's not an equilibrium that's a problem. It's just Pareto optimality is when you're in a situation where um, you cannot make anyone uh, better off without making someone worse off. And in general, you want to be Pareto optimal because if you're not Pareto optimal, it means that you could make some people better off without making anyone worse off. So, and 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 the problem with um the the, the problem with uh, with life in general is that uh, a Nash equilibrium in general is not Pareto optimal. But is it possible? Uh, yes, and so that's what's interesting. You have this concept of super Nash equilibrium. So super Nash equilibrium is one that's obtained when people are free to create any type of contract and automatically enforce any type of contract between them. And if you allow that, if you allow people to basically form contracts, form agreements, and automatically enforce those agreements, you get a stronger thing, which is a super uh, Nash equilibrium. And those are part of the optimal. So basically what this tells us is you have really good outcomes where uh, everyone, you know, where you can't make like people better off is, is the ability to uh, contract uh, at low cost and to have automatic enforcement of those contracts. And I think that's what uh, smart contracts and blockchains can bring to the table. This is not just theory to you. This is not just theory to you. You are, um, the developers are, as far as I understand, the developers have um, 
put into the code and and in practice when you guys launched in uh, 2018, uh, a lot of different concepts to make to make it as fair as possible. And I guess I'm still unconvinced that you know you can have like a perfect system where everyone is fair and everyone is equal. I feel like in some situations, if someone's going to be is going to have uh, more opportunity than someone else, or you know, the distribution wise, then then. I'm not sure if there is a solution to that, but that can be, you know, put out. Um, I guess what I'm leading towards is where, if we look at like, you know, I don't, I know you don't like to use the word governance, but if you look at um, the word governance on a spectrum and you look at Bitcoin as the complete, you know, one side, Arthur, if you look at Bitcoin and it's like complete non-governance, right? And then you look at, uh, and the, its lack of governance is governance, basically. Then you look at something like, almost, you know, completely on the other side of that. And I was, I would almost put Tezos, um, in, in that category because you, um, you know, I want to, I want to read a quote from, from your co-founder and your wife. Um, she said, the great irony of Bitcoin is that ultimately a tool for community consensus, ultimately it's a tool for community consensus, but it's marred by a tremendous amount of animosity. Tezos allows for innovation to happen in a systemized way, as opposed to one born of politics. Do you think that it's too much? Do you think that too much governance can be worse than not enough governance? I, I don't think you can quantify governance of like, you know, you, oh, you have it, you don't have it. I think everyone has uh, some form of governance uh, and Bitcoin has governance and, and, and you've seen uh, Bitcoin governance at play. Uh, you've had soft forks, for example, um, or you know the decision not to do something is also uh, is, is also governance. The, 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 I think the, the right framing for it is um, is more what what are the what are the processes that you have in terms of uh, of governance and who um, who basically um, who basically can do what on the system. And I think for um, I, I think what you can what you can look at is how how difficult is it to enact. Any uh, any change, and I think it's certainly valuable uh, in Bitcoin that it is very difficult for uh, people to unilaterally uh, enact changes. You don't really want that. You don't want anyone to be able to come in and just change um, the system any way they want, because then you don't have any stability, and you can't have any uh, pretense at creating money if you don't have any uh, any uh, any at, at the very least um, stability in what in uh, in what you're doing. So that's one aspect. But I don't think that in that respect, Tezos is the opposite. Um, I, I, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think it's easy to, uh, to modify Tezos. So in a, in, a current, uh, in a current version of the protocol, you basically need something like an 80 or 70% quorum and an 80% supermajority uh, if you want to do anything, uh, if you want to, uh, to approve something. And so... It's set to only a law for extremely, um, extremely non-controversial changes. Seventy percent no. is a huge. It's like a supermajority, and and we'll get into eight, we'll get eighty percent supermajority. Eighty percent. Eighty percent. And we'll, seventy is just a quorum. Oh, okay. So I want to ask you because I, uh, and a little bit later on, I wanted to talk about baking and 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 delegating. Yeah. But be, just because you brought it up now, um, kind of my response to that is. Um, do you remember when EOS first launched, there was a lot of issues because simply people just weren't voting. So simple things couldn't get passed through. 
Um, yeah. Could you run into a very similar, could Tezos run into a similar situation like that? Uh, not really, uh, for two reasons. One is that voting is delegated by default. Uh, so you can vote by yourself, but by default, uh, your vote is delegated. And so it's delegated to the bakers, the people who produce block on the system. And, and, and because of that, you know, those people typically pay attention because they're running a server. And so they, they kind of pay closer attention uh, on a more regular basis as a chain. And so they're more likely to participate in a vote. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that uh, if people don't vote, the quorum adjusts down until people are able to vote. So over time, the, the system unlocks itself. It can take a while, but it, in the same way that you can have difficulty adjustment in, uh, in Bitcoin, you have a quorum adjustment. So basically, when, when someone creates an account, they can, it's automatically, their vote is automatically de- delegated to, what is it, the 32? Um... No, it's, it's not automatic. They have to do it, but most people have done it. Um, so far, 75%, uh, 75% of, the, of the funds on a platform are delegated uh, to, some, uh, to some bigger. What type of votes have have you guys had in the past? Um... Um, there's been three votes so far. Um, the first one was for a, um, a version of a protocol called Athens, and that was really about testing the voting mechanism. Uh, but there were a few changes in the protocol, so uh, it was changing some constants, uh, allowing for a little more uh, time for executing uh, transactions uh, in the blocks. Uh, and the other one was for reducing a little bit the granularity at which stake is computed. So just two simple constants, mostly like testing the whole voting mechanism. The second proposal has been um, the past was Babylon. And Babylon uh, was a much more substantial change. Uh, it changed the way that uh, accounts are organized. Uh, it changed some of the uh, upcodes. Uh, so it wasn't a con- it was not a controversial change. How many how many votes were like what percent of votes were were made? Uh, it was over. Um, I, I I think the quorum was between seventy and eighty percent, and, uh, and, wow. and 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 a proportion of yes was over uh, was over eighty so percent. So I mean, Arthur, it's it's cool because you know you've had three votes. Um, the project oh, so, is so, so is the, not... the third vote is is Cartage. It, it is in the process of uh, of happening. Okay. So you've had two votes in the process of the third. The project is only officially launched less than two years ago. And um, it's it it's intriguing because, you know, if I had to, if someone said, can you like explain your thoughts on Tezos in one sentence? My, You know, my response would be, I would say that it's well thought out. This is very well thought out. Um, I, I, I like to think that I know a little bit of, about blockchains. Um but I have to say, prior to this call, I was surprised about how little I knew. And when I had to dive into the research and understanding the architecture and how your network shell works, and the, you, know, you have separate types of accounts, implicit and originated accounts, and we'll get into that in a little bit. In, in, in a little bit. But I guess my question is like, what was the vision? And because I know that you guys were working on this as early as 2014. Um, so that's a long time to be working on something, right, without launching. What was the vision and whose vision was it? Um, what was the idea like 10, 20 years down the road? What made you guys fall in love with this concept? I mean, for me, what really attracted me to this idea is, for, first of all, I've always had a, um, a fascination for self-amending systems. Um, there's a two that I can cite. One is a game, Nomic. So Nomic is this game where you start with a very minimal set of rules 
and then but those rules provide for their own amendments so you can create more rules from those rules uh, and the game starts out with a very simple win condition and then that gets transformed over time now since it's a game and the point is having fun people create crazy rules and um, there can be a perception sometimes that if you have a nomic like system that's what ends up happening I, I don't think that's the case I, I just think that's because it's uh, it's a game and that's what's the original uh rules points toward. The other um, self-amending system that I'm uh, fascinated about is this concept in AI called the good old machine uh, that was introduced by uh, uh, a scientist called uh, Jürgen Schmiduba. And what it does, what the good old machine does is that it tries to um, it tries to solve a problem, but uh, as it tries to solve a problem, it also tries to come up with a way of rewriting itself plus a proof that the rewrite is beneficial. And so you have a machine that's like perpetually trying to come up with provable way of improving itself, and that's a and it's I don't think it's a practical concept, but it's like well defined mathematically, and that's and 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 I find that idea fascinating. So we have a self-amending system with Cisos. It's a blockchain that provides for its own change. What really made me think about that is in the early days of uh, of, uh, of of Bitcoin. Um, there was a lot of excitement over some innovation that was happening uh, in, you know, in, in this space. Innovations around, uh, um, there was some innovation that people were thinking about proof of stake and they were really interesting ideas that people were researching. There were ideas around privacy, around smart contracts. And I was very excited. I was super excited about Bitcoin. And I was at the time, um, I was very upset that a lot of the so-called altcoins. So first of all, most of the altcoins didn't have any type of innovation, but I was thinking, but but some of them did, and I was seeing, you know, I was seeing the uh, Ethereum project go its way. I was seeing Zcash go its way, and and the, the the rationale at the time was that well, you know, innovation can happen in altcoin, but it doesn't matter because Bitcoin can always incorporate that. What Bitcoin is is a ledger, right? Bitcoin is just a ledger. The underlying algorithms that maintain that, 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 that ledgers that can change, that can evolve over time. And we went from that vision to a vision of saying, uh, Bitcoin should never change. And all these ideas are bad anyway. And so we shouldn't even have them. You really think that happened? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was a time there, there, there was a time where a lot of ideas were seriously being discussed. And, 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 and it's a double, you know, it, it, it's a thing. It's, it's, it's kind of like sour, it's sour grapes. You know, in the, in the fable of the sour grapes, there's a fox who wants to eat grapes, and the grapes are too high, and so he can't freeze the grapes, and he decides that they're sour anyway. And so this idea is like, well, Bitcoin shouldn't change, and those, those ideas are are bad anyway. I, I think it would be more it would be more uh, plausible if people were saying like, you know what, some some of these ideas are good, and we wish we had them, but it's not worth changing Bitcoin for them. I could respect that position. Uh, or the idea of saying like some ideas are good and then we're gonna and 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 uh, but we need to very very carefully integrate them over time that that's respectable but the idea is like no these ideas are not good and and we wouldn't integrate them anyway it's kind of like wow what a nice coincidence that all the ideas are uh, are perfect from the from the get go so I'm pretty um, I'm pretty skeptical of that point of view but I also come from a uh, and that is, I, I also come from a position of maximalism in the sense that I think this is largely a uh, a winner-take-all scenario for blockchains. I Do you really? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the main use case by far is being some some form of, some form of uh, of money, 
and that monetary premium is a huge network effect. And so like th- that's the whole point. You don't want you, you can't have your feature being introduced by everyone launching a new chain. Like right right now we have a bunch of chains coming on which are defined solely by a consensus algorithm. <laughs> you know, as a consensus algorithm does not make money. And uh you need, you know, it, you can't just every time someone has a new ID, just launch a new coin. It's not going to work. So either these coins are not going to succeed. They won't get any network effect. Um, and then you won't have innovation or they will succeed and you'll have something that's even worse. You'll have disruption. And so that's, and, and, and I see that as, uh, I see that as problematic. You need to have a way to account for innovation. So there's two things. First, you need to, you need to, you, know, you need to agree to the idea that innovation in this space is possible that you can come up with a better mousetrap. That's the first thing. And the second thing is you need to have a way to fold in this innovation while staying decentralized. And, um, and that's, that's, that's what Tezos is trying to do. The way, the way Bitcoin was built um, originally was that it's, it's one block of code. It's one protocol. It's, it's all the same. So any real changes, even like something like SegWit that shouldn't have been controversial was because, like you said, it was a change to the to the main uh, protocol. However, um, with Tezos, with the architecture, you've broken that down into three. Uh, you have the network protocol, transaction protocol, and consensus. Can you explain the difference between the three? And because they are now broken up into three separate ones, do you feel that it's easier to make changes to to one specific one instead of making changes to all of them at the same time? Yeah, so the, the main abstraction that you have in Tezos is one between the shell and the protocol. And you can think of the shell as it's a process that runs and it connects on a peer-to-peer network and it exchanges messages with other uh, peers and it grabs blocks and blocks have operations in them and, it's, um, and, and, and it does reorganization, writes data to the disk. It, it does all of these functions, but it's completely agnostic. The shell is completely agnostic. There's just an, an underlying blockchain underneath and for the shell, what a blockchain is, is just a series of blocks, and those blocks have operations. It could be transactions, it could be anything else. Uh, it doesn't know. Um, so it reorgan- you know, it, it organizes blockchain. And then it has a small module. I mean, it's not that small, but it has a module, which is a protocol. And what the protocol does is it defines what the rules are. And so the protocol is completely sandboxed. The protocol doesn't have access to your uh, the protocol doesn't have access to your disk. It doesn't have access to the file system. It doesn't have access to the network. The protocol purely defines the rules, and that's abstracted. And the protocol itself, uh, you can divide it into the consensus part. So the consensus part is basically um, the heaviest chain rule. It's telling you which chain, you know, given two chains, which one you should um, you should uh, sh- should be the canonical one. And the other one is all the rules about the transactions. You know, what is a transaction? What is a contract? What happens when a certain operation takes place? And yeah, I, I think those changes make it more modular and, uh, and easier to change. It also means that part of the idea was you don't want you know was to minimize uh, any need for for governance. You really want to have your governance over the minimal, the, the smallest possible surface, um, and and that happens to be anything that's consensus critical code. So anything that you find the role of editor, anything else. So there's one shell which is in uh, in, in OCaml, but there's another one um, that's still in development, but it, you can still already use it to synchronize the chain uh, that's in Rust. So you can write 
shells in different languages, but the, the, the consensus critical code, the part of the code that defines the system, um, that's, you know, that, that, that's just, a, that, that's just a, uh, an abstraction. And, and that's what you modify, and that's what people uh, agree on uh, when they are, uh, you know, when, when governance takes place. Okay, so then you so then if we move forward, there are two types of accounts. There are implicit accounts and originated accounts. As far as I understand, an implicit account is just like um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, pr pretty much any other crypto, public-private key pair. Um, you know, even with some other fancy different blockchains, you can use that account to vote to to uh, delegate. But you've launched also this other type of account called an originated account. So why the two? What's the difference and why the two? Yeah, so the, origin, the difference is that the originated account is more of a smart contract. So it has code, it has data. Uh, and there's been a cleanup. So part of the, uh, part of the changes that came in Babylon uh, was cleaning up a lot of the um, a lot of the system at, at launch we had three types of accounts and so there was um and and you could pay transaction fees using any account and so on so forth so that the, the demarcation was made much clearer in the latest um in the latest version of the protocol where you have a complete separation between the two and so you can think of anything that's implicit as what you would use uh for money for payments anything like that and anything uh, with smart contracts would be uh, an origin uh, account, and but but I, I you know I don't think that's not particularly unique. I think um, Ethereum has its distinction as well. For example, uh, what I do what what I think is uh, fairly new that uh, I, I haven't seen other smart contract platforms do is that um, making sure that the fees are paid only by implicit accounts means that you can reason more efficiently about the validity of a block. Uh, what, what it lets you do is that it lets the people who create block not execute a smart contract. So you can execute a smart contract only when you see the block and not when you create a block. It's a, it's, it's a small technical thing, but just doing that, you, you can gain a, a 2x or 3x in, uh, in throughput uh, by, making sure, by making sure of that. That's one of the nice things with, uh, with Bitcoin. Um, if, 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 I see a, if I see a Bitcoin block, it's very, very... Uh, easy. Uh, it's, it's very fast to check if the block is valid. The first thing you're going to check is, you know, are there any uh, are there any uh, UTXOs which are being spent, which are actually not UTXOs? That's you know, that's a very fast check, and then you verify the validity of the transaction themselves. So it's very direct. You don't need to execute a lot of code. With smart contracts, it's a little more different because you need to compute, uh, you need to execute smart contracts, you need to compute gas, and so on and so forth. So what this does is that it allows us to um, to basically create blocks without having to worry about uh, about gas, you basically all you worry about is you know is is a block creator going to get the transaction fee or not? That's the only thing you care about, and then you defer the execution for when people actually get the block. Can I ask you a question? Yes, that's part. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stupid. I just said that, right? <laughs> no, I guess if I were to compare this, um, would you would, would this be a fair comparison? Because. Um, a lot of times our listeners, like sometimes these things get a little too complicated. So if I were to create an analogy and say like what you just described, an example of that were to be was, let's just say with, with Ethereum, um, they decided to split and, and create, well, they already did that, but create within the Ethereum blockchain, like two separate types of accounts. Uh, one for like microtransactions where it's a certain amount of value, it's microtransactions, and therefore no gas is allowed, is needed. And then you have 
a different type of account where gas is needed, but the account can do a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that a fair? Is that a fair comparison? Is that a yeah. fair like analogy? Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I mean, it's. I, I, I think the it's, thing is, are there? It sounds so brilliant. That's the thing. So why isn't anyone else doing that? Like that sounds like such a great way to solve the gas issue and the transaction fee issue, right? Um, I mean, you, you're, still, so you're, cool. you're still going to hit some limits. And the, the thing is, like, you, there's only your validators can only validate so many transactions. But there are a lot. So, I, if I had to tell my philosophy in terms of like roadmaps or anything like that, is that there's a lot of low hanging fruits, and and I think a lot of people are interested in. In, in in breaking new ground and making very um, advanced stuff, and people are not that interested in picking little hanging fruits, and so I uh, I'm, I'm I'm here for uh, <laughs> I like to uh, I like to grab those. So for example, uh, one thing that's fairly easy to do is uh, in general it's very hard to parallelize uh, smart contract execution because smart contracts can interact with one another, but the general case is that they don't. You know, if you look at the typical block and you have a, a bunch of transfers, almost none of these transfers interact with uh, with each other. And so being able to explicitly say that in a block so that a validator can validate in parallel, for example, I mean that's 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 something that's helpful. And it's you know, it's not trivial to implement, but it's not it's it's not also like um breaking uh like breaking new fields of computer science or anything like that. And I I, I I think there should be more of a focus on those low-hanging fruits, and less so on uh, on on grand uh, on grand like five-year roadmaps, because we don't You're, know where we'll you know we don't we don't know what the world will look like in uh, in five years. And I'm not saying that it's not a good idea to also do like breaking, uh, like breaking new ground with uh, with important research. I'm not saying that at all. I think that's very valuable, but it's also important to prioritize. Are you worried about that dreadful certified letter from the IRS? Are you worried about the IRS auditing your crypto returns? then you need Crypto Tax Audit. They provide IRS audit defense designed for the crypto owner. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself, including preparing the required anti-laundering forms. Subscribe today at CryptoTaxAudit.com for $97. That's CryptoTaxAudit.com. I'm so honored that Untold Stories is sponsored by eToro, eToro is the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year. What I really love about eToro is that the CEO has been around the Bitcoin space since 2012, so they really, really put their money where their mouths are. U.S. customers, myself included, we can trade the most popular crypto assets, in fact, almost all of the ones that you want to trade with low but transparent fees. So you actually know what you're paying for everything. And that's really, really, really important. So if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice building your portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. So you can create this whole portfolio without trading with any real money to see how you'll do. And you could learn all the different ins and outs without using any real money yet. And then once you're comfortable, you can enter the market and start buying and selling crypto for real. Best of all, one of my favorite features is that you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders in the world, myself included. And we can talk trading, charts, and all things crypto. So listen, head on over to eToro.com 
Links are in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. I agree with you. It's it's extremely important to prioritize low-hanging fruit versus five-year plans. I think both are very important, right? I think both are very important. But what you're alluding to, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that um, more focus needs to be put on the now. Because crypto moves so quickly. Like, we don't know where we're going to be in a year. We It's constantly like you have to be updating, changing, and growing on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, um, because really five-year plans, Arthur, don't work in 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 our industry. It it doesn't kind of now that I'm thinking about it, I I, I have to say I agree with you. Um, now that I'm really kind of saying it out loud, um, but Arthur, I'm going to push back because you do think down the road. You do think five years out. I mean. Look at the questions that I've simply asked you already, right? Like the question, for example, how do you prevent people from not voting like what happened on EOS? You had a great answer to that. It's already been well thought out. And in practice, it was already solved. So you must have have, have you must have had to have thought these through for like down the road. So well, I didn't think it would be five years out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's why I think it was. Uh, I think you it, see I mean, why the, that's the, exciting, the, right? But the, the issue existed at that time. I think one of the main problems is that if you know, if 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 you have some things that you know, if 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 you have a lot of users, and your users have very specific needs, and they're pushing back on those needs, then it's kind of easy to iterate on a product and make it better for your users because you get this constant feedback and you can climb that gradient and you can say like, okay, my users want this, my users want that. And it's, I, you know, I, you can't just do that. I think you also need a little bit of a, a vision. There's a famous quote by uh, Henry Ford, I think saying like, you know, if I listen to my, what my, uh, my customers wanted that they would just, you know, what they wanted was a faster horse. So, um, Oh, I like that. That's a great quote. Oh yeah. I, I don't, I don't like, I have to look no, it up I know, to but I, I, code, but it's something like that. Sometimes, the sometimes the customers don't know what they want. Um, and then you have figures like Steve Jobs, you know, putting out products and saying like, no, this is what you want and telling people. And, and that's all fair and good. Uh, but there's, um, that's all fair and good. But, but you, you still need to have, you know, you still need to have some feedback. And right now, the main problem is that the main use case uh, so far, has been basically store of value that's been demonstrated by by Bitcoin. You know, people just uh, buy Bitcoin and hold it. And I think that's and I I I think it's a completely fair uh, use case. I think that holding is using. I'm completely in line with that uh, assessment. However, um, it doesn't provide for a lot of uh, it doesn't fr- provide for a lot of useful feedback, and that's uh, that's a uh, that's an issue. And it's all it's only once we you know once you start having uh, more people using it, it's a it's a bit of a catch twenty two because you don't have enough people using it, and so as a result, you don't get a lot of feedback, and as a result, maybe you're missing out on uh, on people using it. So there's a bit of a uh, there's a bit of a conundrum here. I see your point, um, but it's the main you know it's it's it, 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 and it's in its entire space that is the main the main problem. The main problem is that there's more infrastructure, there's more tooling, there's more technologies, and there is demand for technology. That's the main. Uh, I feel like that happened over the last two years. So, um, you know, it's like the way I almost look at it is you go from one extreme to the other. So, um, you ever, 
Do you ever um, see those like TRX um, workout, like uh, the ropes that people are able to like work out in their house? And it's like you pull on. Uh, I never, yeah, yeah, I've seen those. Yeah, I've seen. I've never used one either. But I, <laughs> I've seen it. Um, I didn't say I didn't use it. No, I've seen this. No, I'm saying I didn't. Use, <laughs> I, I know. I'm just teasing you. Um, okay. So, so you know how like when you pull, like the harder you pull one way, the harder it'll pull back the other way. I almost feel like that's her space, and that may be a terrible analogy, but um, it's the only one I could think of at the moment. But you're right. So in the beginning, and 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 you know this because y- you were largely in the space back then. Um, our infrastructure was lacking. I mean, look at, look at the company that I started in, tw- in 2011. It was, it was, uh, it was an infrastructure company, but it, like the fact that we didn't have any, okay. But so there was ton of demand, ton of demand. Infrastructure wasn't there yet. Look at the bubble when we went to $36, look at the bubble when we went to $20,000, look at the bubble went to $1,200, right? Infrastructure, when, whenever we have the stress test, when there's a huge amount of demand, we learn that our infrastructure is not there yet. So now, Arthur, our demand is like maybe like a twentieth of what it was, just based on you know the. It's hard to quantify that, um, but the infrastructure growth continued to grow, 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 expand. So now we're at a point now where I think you're right. I think the infrastructure that we have now is saturated, um, but the demand is not growing fast enough, but it is still continuing to grow. But I just think infrastructure grew too fast. So is that a problem or won't it just kind of balance itself out? Well, one of the biggest question that I have, and I don't, and I unfortunately don't have an answer to that question is there's one thesis, which is that uh, people are interested in using these things for a lot more than store of value. And the reason they're not using this thing is that the infrastructure can't scale. And if they were to use it, fees would go would become so high that it would become impractical. And, you know, it's like no one is using this because if everyone was using it, it wouldn't work. And so they don't even try. But it, it feels a little bit like, you know, Yogi Berra saying, no one goes there, it's too crowded. Or no one takes the highway, there's like too much traffic jams. And it's, it's certainly appealing because I do remember an era where people were really trying to use Bitcoin. People were really trying to, uh, pay their bills with Bitcoin. Um, there was a lot of focus on uh, on payments, being able to bootstrap as money. And according to some people, you know, it's like, well, fees kill that. And that's the reason why it doesn't happen anymore. Um, and I, I'm not, sh- the, other, the other side of the coin is that, you know, there's no benefit to doing that. You know, you can pay your coffee cup with dollars, there's never going to be a really a, a strong benefit for doing with Bitcoin. And therefore, since there's no benefit for doing it, it was just a fad because of novelty, but there's no real demand here. And, um, and it's not worth really addressing. And I can see both sides of the yeah, argument. Yeah, no, I, I, I um, could definitely see both sides of the arguments too. But um, I'm going to do a really bad segue here, but I want to talk about like my favorite subject. Um, I nerd out and geek out on consensus algos. Like I... I should probably get a t-shirt that says, I love consensus algos. It's, it's nerdy, but they're cool, right? Um, they're cool because they're novel and they're different. Um, and mm-hmm. so um, before I had heard about Tezos, one of my favorite uh, consensus algos was delegated proof of stake. I was very involved in early uh, bit shares and Steam community. And, um, mm-hmm. and I saw how that worked, but then I saw how it wasn't going to work. And you know what was so interesting? The Steemit 
and BitShares community uh, accurately predicted the flaws that EOS was going to have because really like, and I can say this because I know Dan Larimer very well and I was very involved. I mean, he's he's the same guy who created the whole three. So, but it was, it's the same shit. (laughs) It's the same thing. It's just, it's, I, I can say that. Yes, there are differences and maybe they're expanded on, but realistically, BitShare, Steam and EOS are all based on the same DPOS and they're all based on like the same uh, concepts and ideas. And I hate to say it, but the same code. I'm not here to like hound on that because I love like Steam it and the BitShares community. They're, they're, they're phenomenal people. Why do I bring this up? Because you've expanded on that with these really cool concepts of liquid democracy and liquid proof of stake. Super cool when I was doing the research. But you're here now, so you maybe you can explain it better than I can to our listeners. Um, how is liquid proof of stake different than delegated proof of stake? And how is that different from proof of work and proof of stake? I know it's a huge question. And then we could talk about liquid democracy, which was which was super freaking cool. But tell us about liquid proof of stake and what that's all about. Yeah, so one of the um one of the design goals for for the consensus in Tezos was that you wouldn't anyone could basically uh if if you had 0.01% uh of the uh of, of all the tokens or maybe 0.1% of the tokens you could create 0.1% of the block and you could create 0.1% of the inflation because if you do that uh it basically means that you're not you don't really have any inflation and you know right right now if you're if you're using proof of work the inflation pays for electricity, so it's paid by everyone. You get diluted by the coins which are being created for, for miners, at least until the block reward runs out, but then it's not clear that you have a secure um, enough of a security budget from fees alone. So that's the first thing. But if, 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 it's the thing, like fees in a proof-of-stake system can be deflationary. That's a nice thing. Um, and so you have this design constraint. You want, if, if I have a small amount, but you also don't want everyone sticking everything um, at the same time, um, I didn't like systems where you would have to say like, "No, I'm staking," and then once I start locking locking my funds, I can receive rights to create blocks. The idea was that the right to create a block would just happen randomly. If you own a token, maybe you, maybe you randomly get the right to create a block once in a while, and then you would have to put up a safety deposit before creating that block. So it's not staking in a sense of like, "Oh, I'm locking some funds." And then I receive rights to create blocks, and only the people who lock their funds get right to create blocks. Everyone get everyone receives right to create blocks. Everyone does, but in order to exercise them, you need to put up a, uh, a safety deposit. So that's the first thinking. The second thinking is that an important criticism of proof of stake that was made at the time is that it required your keys to be online at all time. You couldn't really use cold storage if you were doing proof of stake. Um, because your keys would have to be ready uh, to create blocks. So there was this idea of having a different key for signing the blocks. You would have your key, and then in the event that you receive a block, you have this different key that lets you sign the block. That's a design consideration. Now, of course, it lends itself immediately to a form of delegation where the delegated key could be controlled by someone else. You know, you could have your own key, and then you could have someone else uh, create the block. And that creates... That ends up that end up with a lot of private uh, agreements between people who run um, servers and, and create blocks, 
and uh, and and people who delegate their rights to create blocks to those uh, to those people. So that's that's the model. It's not based on the idea that there's going to be a fixed set of delegators and people vote for these delegators. That would be the boss. It's the idea of look, you can create your blocks if you want to. You know, you have control. You have this right to create blocks. They're yours. But you have control into like how you uh, how you allocate them, and so what you see is you you see bakers basically uh, like buy would, these rights to create blocks from people. Would it be a fair comparison to say that it's the proof of stake version of a built-in protocol level pool? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I think that would be uh, I think that would be fair. Um, there was a uh, the, the difficulty. The, the problem is that some some people might think that it's. It, it, Delegation weakens uh, staking because there's less skin in the game. Um, you know, the, um, people might not pay attention who they, who they delegate to, whereas if, if it's, you know, their own operation, they are. They're paying more attention, and that's fair. The problem is that delegation is a reality, and if you don't provide for it in the protocol, people will find it using custodial solutions. So basically, if I have some tokens and I can't delegate them within protocol, what people will do is they will send their tokens to an exchange who will do it for them. Uh, and I think if, if some people do that, I think that's, that's that's fine. But you don't want it to be a mass. You don't want it to be to be completely uh, to be completely massive. You want to encourage self custody, and so there's a balance between not discouraging self custody, uh, but also encouraging um, direct participation. And it, 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 it's hard to find the right balance. It's kind of like seat belts, you know. Uh, if you if you have if you, yeah, it's a good analogy. I see what you're saying. And, yeah. And I, oh, so before you even said it. Yeah, yeah. It's like I and there's a there's a famous like, econo- article in uh, uh, by an economist about seat belts. And you know, before I before I proceed, I, I I will say that it's really important to wear seat belts, and everyone should wear seat belts. But the question is that if you have seat belt laws, then people are less likely to die in accidents, but they're also more likely to be less careful overall and so they're likely to be more accidents and so the effect goes away you could end up with like less fatalities or more fatalities depending on which effect is more important and you have exactly these dynamics play out you can make you know you can make your protocol tougher but then people will like flock to uh trusted third parties which is bad or you can make it more lenient but then they may pay less attention and it's it's really it has hard to be to a perfect balance. balance it's really yeah tough. it has to be a perfect balance so um what what type of scenario did you envision um, when when it was decided, um, well, not decided on, but when it was coded in that, you know, you can have, let's just say me, for example, and I can delegate you, but then you can delegate someone else and then we all share the rewards, but I'm kind of at the top. Is that is that accurate? What what type of scenarios did you envision that that, that would be needed for a delegate to, to delegate their voting of someone else? Um, so I guess like another only, layer. No, there's only level. one level of delegation. You, there's no. Uh, there's no. Oh, I'm wrong. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, so what? No, I'm, I'm not a fan I'm of too many layers trans- because if you have too many layers, then scene starts getting. So what's transitivity then? What? What? Where does transitivity come in? There's. Uh, did I? There's did no I, transitivity. Was there at some point in the past? No. 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 The oh. uh, the only people who had something like that were. Uh, uh, Definity had proposed something like that, where basically you would like delegate to someone, and they would delegate to someone, and they would set programmatic rules for how to make a decision based on how, like different people that they follow make a decision. 
uh, I, I think this, this well, I'm not going to call out my friend's company, but I just paid for some research about Tezos, like a hundred bucks. And I better get my money back because it's wrong. Oh my God. Well, yeah, there's no transitivity. Uh, no, it's wrong. It's great. I, I think the problem is doing this if, if you have, uh, <clears throat> if you have too much, if you have too much meta delegation, if you have too many layers, yeah, that's what, I think you breed systemic risk. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And that's what I was a little confused because that's why I asked you, Arthur, like, in what scenario would this be needed? Like, I didn't ask you about it and explain it. I was like, why, in a nicer way, what what would be the purpose of this? But now you've you've cleared that up. Um, thank you. So um, the question the question I have for you is, what's your community like? Like, where do they congregate? What do they talk about? And and how are they different from from other communities? Um. Well. Where does it congregate? First of all, um, the most active forum is uh, is probably Reddit. So Reddit slash R slash Tezos. Um, they are also different chat rooms. There's a, a there's a big one on Riot. Uh, so Riot is actually the name of the client. The name of the protocol is Matrix. Uh, but so Matrix slash Riot is uh, there are some Tezos rooms. There's some groups on Telegram. So you know the usual um, the usual platforms. Um, and uh, I think there's different members of the of the community. I think there's a lot of people um, who are uh, excited about development. So there are like a lot of uh, developer groups working on uh, working on Tezos, uh, building uh, libraries, utilities. There are groups which are more focused on baking. So there uh, there's a baking Slack, for example, where the bakers congregate and talk about running nodes, uh, running delegation services. Uh, so that's another aspect of the technology. There are people who are just a uh, fan of the projects, uh, who uh, want to, you know, who are excited about Tezos, want to know where Tezos is going. So you know, you have all these different uh, groups which are uh, slightly different, um, uh, you know, slightly different interests, but they're all uh, generally pretty interested in discussing about uh, Tezos, hearing what's going on, sharing ideas. There's also a new group. Um, there's a new forum called uh, Tezos Agora. Which is focused on more um, research and technical discussion about the projects, and it's fairly new, but it's 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 been growing. Uh, it's been growing well. What's what's your future? I mean, um, you guys are out there. You're you're the bread is rising, right? To use the the baking term, you're growing the community. Yeah, the technology works. It's broken down into multiple layers. Um, you've already had two votes, uh, and you're working on the third now. Largely, the consensus algo is working. Socioeconomic experiment is working. Um, what now? Now at this point, if the demand was there, what what would be your optimal? Like what what type of projects or companies or contracts? What would you like see built on Tezos? And we have thousands of developers that are listening to this show. So um, this question is for them. Yeah. So I, I think the Initial use cases I'm most excited about. I will go into um, there's a few category. One is finance. Um, in general, lowering the ticket price for financial services is useful. Peer to peer insurance, for example, is one uh, is one area that I think is very promising. That's my favorite. Um, I think the whole insurance industry should be on the blockchain. Uh, prediction markets, I think, are very uh, are, are 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 very cool. You know, I used to. Uh, uh, a long time ago, I used to be on Intrade. I love uh, I, I love uh, looking at um, prediction market for politics. You know, they give you a better sense than uh, than polls. How accurate are they? Because I always see people post 
in you know pre, but then after the fact, I never see how accurate the results are. Um, well, that's a, are they good? That's a good question. Is like how do you judge the accuracy of uh, of something like that? Because you you know they can't be uh, they can't be perfect. And 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 the one way you can judge the accuracy is to say like, well, if they say that something is going to happen, and they give it a probability of sixty percent, does it happen sixty percent of the time? And that tends to be true. And and the reason why you know the, the main reason why we can expect them to be good is that. If people knew, knew them to be bad in some predictable way, they would arbitrage them. You know, they would make uh, they would make money on the prediction market. That's the thing is that, it, you know, it, it, it's it's a whole uh, efficient market hypothesis, which says like you know if you're so clever, why aren't you so rich? Um, and it's the same thing if you know if you think prediction markets, for example, are bad, then arbitrage them. Uh, they, they used to be a uh, you know there used to be this perception that uh, uh, that populist options were underpriced by prediction markets and it happened because really? yeah it, it happened by because of two events it happened uh, around the same time it happened because of uh, of brexit and it happened because of uh, of trump so brexit and trump were both uh seeing as uh um the they were, they were not the favorites in the in prediction market prediction market was thinking that uh hillary was more likely to win uh, I think Trump, like around towards the end, Trump was at twenty five percent, Hillary seventy five percent, and they also saw that Brexit was not going to pass, and they were wrong in both accounts. And around that time, two thousand sixteen, there was a narrative that emerged saying, like, "Oh, prediction markets don't know anything; they they they, they don't understand. Uh, they are, you know, they're focused on uh, the elite mainstream. They don't understand the importance and rise of populism." I'm like, okay, you know, maybe that's true. But then you had a French election. And in the French election, shortly after, you had, that, you had yeah. a fairly establishment candidate versus a populist candidate. And I saw a lot of people were betting on the populist candidates because they were saying the same thing. It's like, oh, yeah. What they didn't see is that you know where the polls for Brexit and for uh, Trump, they, they were pretty close. You know, they were like 49, 51, you know, this type of uh, this type of thing. So there was a big margin of error. And there was none like the like the, the the establishment candidate in France was polling like twenty points ahead of the populist candidates, so like it was a no brainer in terms of uh, of uh, of like of a market bet. I was gonna say that <laughs> French people may be a little bit smarter than us and realize that po- sometimes populist mm-hmm. candidates say dumb shit, but that's besides <laughs> the point. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not even like I'm not even making a point about populism or anything like that. I mean, I'm just like just look at the numbers, you know. If you pull 20 points, like, you know, maybe the polls are going to underestimate the populist candidate by a couple of points. They're not gonna they're not gonna be wrong by 20 like the polls are not gonna be wrong by 20%. So th- um, that's actually that's the lesson it, here. And I, I find uh, I find this stuff fascinating. I like uh, I, I like prediction markets for 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 uh, for politics. <laughs> Yeah, prediction markets for politics are. I'm going to start paying more attention to them. Um, and and I think there's a good website. You get a better. You know, election, electionbettingodds.com. Electionbettingodds.com. I never heard of it, but I'm going to check it out. All right. Yeah, yeah. It's they're not one of my sponsors, but now they should be. Okay, so it's a website maintained <laughs> by uh, uh, Max Singlot and John Stossel, and it basically what it does is that it looks at like bookies in the UK, and it aggregates that and it shows you probabilities. So it shows you like. The estimated probability of who's going to win the Democratic nomination, who's going to win the uh, 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 the Republican nomination. Well, it's probably Trump. Like, who's going to win the election? Um, uh, it also has uh, odds for Brexit, so it's it, it's really cool to uh, to look at. So those are like financial applications. I think are interesting. I think there are also interesting use cases for uh, for games. Um, and gaming, in particular, I think is is uh, has a lot of uh, interesting use cases, and a lot of people. 
I think it's the wrong idea. They think that you'll take regular games that exist and then just like, oh, we'll take regular games and we'll put the game items on the blockchain. And I think if you do that, it's 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 not necessarily enough. I think it's a different type of game that we want to see. But we've seen very, very um we've seen thriving games with online economies like Second Life, like World of Warcraft. And I think I, I would, I've been playing Second Life for years when I was a kid, not anymore, but yeah. And I I I think those, I mean, those type of applications, those type of uh, of virtual worlds, uh like having having the like the, the properties on them be more real by being on a blockchain, by being exchangeable. I, to me, that's a real and, and that's a massive use case. How cool would that be if you get something like Second Life on Tezos? Because you have, you have all the governance baked in already. You know, like how I use the word bake, by the way, ah, my yes. pen right there. Nice. <laughs> I went to college for that shit right there. <laughs> um, so you have it all baked in um, that would be great. And like thinking of crazy scenarios. I mean, I, li- I like to war game in my head. I like to, cause I'm a loser. I like to like think of different, you know, like crazy extreme scenarios and then how, you know, technology can solve those scenarios. So imagine like, I don't know, man, this is so cool. I know we're going over, um, like kind of digressing a little bit, but, but it's really cool to like, think about, um, imagine a situation, Arthur, where you had, um, a second life, right? And you had million people playing the game. And imagine if it was on Tezos and imagine if you literally had this whole, you know, like imagine if you had like <clears throat> in there, someone should totally do this. It, it would be so cool. Imagine if you had in there, like, you know, um, a legislature and a Senate or a parliament and it all worked based on the protocols and it all worked based on the blockchain um, to be able to vote and to vote on different things. And imagine if there was like a civil war almost like, and things had to be voted on, on the blockchain, but within the game itself, imagine like, imagine like people actually having to go to a voting booth in the game and the booth pulls up, the booth pulls up like, Hey, what would you like to do today? Do you want to vote? These are the things you need to vote on. Do you want to delegate? Mm-hmm. Um, it would be a phenomenal experiment. It would be so cool. I actually know uh, Phil Rosedale, who's the creator of Second Life, now he has high fidelity. He's a really good friend of mine. And we actually spoke about putting uh, Second Life or, or high fidelity on EOS. Uh, the project fell apart because the bear market came. Uh, and But I should reinvestigate this idea again. This would yeah. be so cool. Yeah. You know, bear markets are, uh, are tough, but like, where else can you buy a bear? Oh, that's great. Can I tweet that? <laughs> I think it's been done before, but you can. <laughs> that's great. Arthur Brightman, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was really wonderful. Um, I know that we educated a lot of people on some really cool topics today. Um, definitely piqued everyone's interest. Now, a listener listen to this show. They're curious about you. They're curious about Tezos. Where would be the first place that you would want them to go to learn more? Oh my God, I'm stumped. Uh, maybe Tezos.com. I, um, <laughs> I haven't looked at Tezos.com in a while. Uh, so I, 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 I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know how it is where, right now. Yeah, you're right. Uh, what, um, really, the, I, I, I like the, the, the chat rooms on Riot the most. So that's where I would go. Uh, but if you, go on, if you go on Reddit, you can see you have all the, you have all the links for, uh, for, for joining the different community chat rooms. Amazing. All right, cool. Thank you again for coming on the show and we'll talk to you soon. I'll hopefully see you in Miami in a few weeks. All right. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. 
New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Schrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.